Hello, this is In Conversations with Chana. I'm Chana Weisberg, and I have an incredible guest with us today. Her name is Chana Butcher, and uh, this is again In Conversations with Chana. We're live with Chana Butcher, who's going to tell us a little about her life story. Chana grew up as someone who practiced Orthodox Christianity, but her mother was always Jewish. So Chana, tell us a little about your background and how you came along on your journey. Sure. Um, I had a very interesting and spiritual journey. Um, I grew up basically half in our church and then half in our Chabad. So how that worked was (laughs) um, my father converted to Orthodox Christianity from Catholicism, and he wanted to raise us in the church that he converted in. And so we went every Sunday. Um, The church was in Miami, so it was about an hour drive um, each way. So it was a schlep to get there, but it was a very... It was a very warm and kind of welcoming place that I remember growing up in. Um, The people there were really good to my family and helped them through a lot of hard times. And we still have really good family friends um, from that church, Rosh Hashem. But at the same time, when I was eight years old, my mom wanted my sister and I to have some kind of Jewish education and Jewish background. So she was looking for Jewish programs, and one of her friends recommended Chabad. And I think at the time, my mom didn't really know what Chabad was. Um, She just knew that it was Jewish, and there were education opportunities for for her kids, and um, also programming for the high holidays. So she wanted to be a little bit more connected. And my father also encouraged this. He wanted us to be... um, to know a little bit more about our background. So we ended up going to Chabad Hebrew school every week. So that was on Tuesdays mm-hmm. um, in Lake Florida. church on Sunday and Hebrew school on Tuesdays. Interesting. And sometimes we would go to church on Wednesdays as well, if it was oh, during wow. a certain holiday season. Um, my family was also really involved with the kind of clergy of the church. My family got very close with priests and bishops, and um, we had them over our house all the time. Um, We went out to dinner with them. My parents had a very close spiritual relationship with both the Chabad rabbi in Robinson and also um, like the clergy of the church. So I grew up always knowing that there was a God, there was Hashem, Mm -hmm. because of both of these education systems. Right. Did you consider yourself more Jewish or more Christian or were you confused about your identity? I saw myself as half and half until probably probably when I was 18, when I went to Israel for the first time, then I fully knew that I was Jewish and what made my, identity you? Was my soul. I'm sorry, you what? My identity was my soul. Your identity I figured was your that soul. out when I was around 18. Wow. So what changed when you were 18? Like what made you look at yourself as Jewish at that point? Yes, it was a a lot of steps that Hashem put in front of me to, so that I could come to that conclusion. Um, I was graduating high school. And at that time I had gone through the JLI teen program through Chabad. 
I'd also gone through a teen learning program at my church. Um, and I knew that I really wanted to go to Israel um, before my first year of college. So I remember... What, why did I, you want to go to Israel? Was that from your Christian longing or from, where, from, your, from your Jewish? It was from both. I feel like Israel for me um, was kind of the middle of that Venn diagram. Like mm -hmm. for both sides of, of those educations, Israel was kind of a center point. So mm -hmm. I thought in order to help me dive into some of the questions that I had, I needed to go to Israel. I thought the easiest way to do that was through birthright. Mm -hmm. um, so I applied. What, what kind of questions did you have at that time? Yeah. Um, a lot of the questions I had referred to my relationship with Hashem. And I think in the church, there was so much more emphasis on on reward and punishment and on, on, on sins and on doing a sin and then having being forgiven for those sins. Um, it just seemed like a constant cycle of doing a sin and then asking for forgiveness. And then people just did it all over again. Um, Interesting. Also, I realized that people didn't, like we went to church, but you could be holy in the church and then once you leave the church and you're living your real life there's no there's no tie to make you act in a holy way in your daily life hmm. it really felt like people put up a persona in just in this church because you're kind of performing around other people as a holy person but then in your daily life there's no there are no boundaries that clear boundaries that you set in order to have a relationship with God and also have a better relationship with other people. Interesting. I found that in Judaism more, especially later on when I was learning. You found that that connection between everyday life, is that, is that what you're saying? More in Judaism. Interesting. Right. With the mitzvot and things that come down to the details, I really enjoyed. Um, just davening every day seemed like such an incredible way to connect to Hashem. So davening means praying for those who don't know. Um, right. So that was, and you didn't, you didn't pray in church? You didn't pray as a Christian? I did, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a set time in my daily life. Mm. We had really, we, we prayed Christian prayers before we ate. And then we also prayed before bed, but I think that was about it outside of the prayers in the church itself. Mm -hmm. um, but my father every night would come to my room and we would just pray together. Hmm. And then after we finished praying, I would ask him really like deep theological questions, mainly because I didn't want to go to sleep. I was like <laughs> 10. <laughs> I didn't want to sleep. So I was asking him, um, I don't know about the history of Christianity, why he decided to convert to this sect of Christianity, because um, it wasn't what he grew up with. Um, and just, I just wanted him <laughs> to keep talking so I didn't have to sleep. But I ended up learning a lot through those late night conversations. I'm sure. Wow. Yeah. So did we you did connect that way through those before bedtime prayers. 
Were you, were you satisfied with those answers? Not quite. I think the idea that um, like a human being died for our sins didn't sit well with me mm-hmm. because people were still sinning. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's human nature. So it didn't really, I didn't see a clear reason behind that story or why that was such a centerpiece in the Christian narrative. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like it affected anything really. <laughs> it was just it's repeated all the time, but it's right. just, it didn't make sense to me why. Um, wow. And I remember asking my dad, um, like, what does that even mean that this person died for our sins? And I do, I do think he tried to explain it very well to the best of his abilities, but it didn't, it's the answer still didn't sit with me. So. It didn't feel like a complete answer. It felt like more of a, like a cop-out answer or acknowledging that it doesn't make sense, but our mm. faith fills it in. Mm. Yeah. And But he, your father was supportive when you decided to embrace your Judaism? It was, it was definitely a process. Mm. Um, so I'll go back to the, the birth. Yeah, you were in the middle of saying you were going to go to birth, right? You yeah. said that was the easiest way to go to Israel. So how did that work? Right. So the birthright trip fell through. Um, I had signed all the papers and paid the the um, the fee ahead of time, and I, I thought it was a hundred percent like it was going to happen. Um, but I also I have an autoimmune disease, and I guess the birthright committee were looking through my medical papers, and they decided that it probably wouldn't be a good idea for me to go on birthright. Um, they said it would be more of a liability for them to take me. So they highly recommended that I didn't go. Um, (laughs) But I think it was, it it was on the phone when they spoke to me, it was more of them saying that they're not going to take me, but I think legally they had to say something else. But so basically I wasn't able to go to Israel suddenly. And um, that that day it was, because that was everything that I, I really wanted to do that. That was my whole summer plan was to go to Israel. Um, But that day was my JLI graduation. So I remember I was really disappointed. JLI, for those who don't know, is Jewish Learning Institute run by Chabad. And it has all kinds of courses for teenagers, adults, everyone. So you were learning there, I guess, some courses about Judaism? Yeah, I was doing that for four years throughout high school. So that was every week throughout high school. It was actually on Sundays. So I had to, every other Sunday, go to church and then in between go to these JLI classes. Um, But no one really knew. My Rebbitson didn't know this until just a couple years ago. She didn't know that what, that you were going to church, that Mm -hmm. you had this this dichotomy in your life. Right. It it wasn't talked about very much. It was just a part of our lives, but we didn't really share it with anyone. Interesting. Right. So you um, just you just graduated from JLI teens mm-hmm. and and I was very sad. I Even though it was I was very happy that I was through with the program, but I didn't I wasn't going to Israel. So after the ceremony we were given certificates and everything, I was speaking to my Robertson and Rabbi about summer plans. And I told them the news that I wasn't going to Israel. 
And my Rebetzin was like, well, why don't you just go to Machanolta? Or she looked, she looked at my rabbi and was like, why doesn't she just go to Machanolta? And his face just lit up and he said, yeah, that's an amazing idea. I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner. My rabbi's family. Who run- was your rabbi and Rebetzin? Um, so my Rebetzin is Leah Rosenfeld. My cousin, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then my rabbi is um, Rabbi Mendy Rosenfeld. So his parents run Machanalto Seminary. Oh, wow. So what divine providence, how this all right. worked out. Uh-huh. Right. And half of that seminary is split. So one half Machanalta is for um, Balichuba, so people who didn't grow up religious in any way, just to give them basic um, foundational learning. There's another half for girls who did grow up religious, um, but we're all in the same building. Mm-hmm. Um, but his parents run both programs. So at that point, I, when my rabbi and Robertson were saying that this would be a great opportunity, I thought it also it would be a great opportunity only because it would bring me to Israel. Sure. And um, I could learn also. I really love school. I really love learning. And um it really, it intrigued me. I didn't really think that anything life-changing was going to happen. I just thought mm-hmm. I was going to be there for a month and then learn some things, um, connect spiritually, but not necessarily make a decision of any kind. Mm-hmm. But Hashem had other plans. <laughs> <laughs> and what were those plans? <laughs> <laughs> so then um, I got there. And um, it ended up being that the, well, I really fell in love with the city, first of all. So the, the seminary is in Tzvat, and it's a very spiritual city, um, a very artsy city. And I, I really love art and creativity. And um, I feel like I'm just, yeah, I just love the air. It's in the mountains. Um, it's a really spiritual place. Um, so I really fell in love with the area and I fell in love with the, the architecture, the doors are blue, the windows are blue. It's really beautiful, um, very nature So I really enjoyed that aspect of being there, but I also made really amazing connections with the girls in the program. And we were all on a similar wavelength. We were all, we all knew Hashem was there and with us. But we were searching for the best way to connect with him and the best way to kind of develop our relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And we were there to help each other. We went on trips together. We had a lot of deep, meaningful conversations together. Um, and we we just explored Israel and explored Sfat. And we went to a lot of um, places where righteous people are buried. Um, we toured a mikvah there. Hmm. These were brand new concepts that I had never heard of. Um, sure. Well, I had heard of some of the terms. I did do C-Teen, which is the Chabad program for teens um, growing up. And so some of these things were briefly explained to me. I had never de- delved into them or dived into them. Um, but here I was able to. So I learned the ins and outs of what it's like to keep kosher. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how complicated it was. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the laws of family purity and how complicated that was. Um, there were so many 
things that went into Judaism. So many um, details. A whole new world, right? Sure. And how did you feel about those details? I was overwhelmed. Making them also really excited. Ah. I wanted to take on everything. Um, wow. I was really excited about Sneas and the laws of modesty. I really just wanted to. In general, I really liked clothes. Like I like to wear like vintage clothes from thrift stores. And I liked the way that you could present yourself with what you wear. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea of Tineas really appealed to me. And why, why is that? Like some people find it so, especially teenagers find it so restrictive. Right. So it's interesting that that Tineas, the laws of modesty, is something that really appealed to you. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that more? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like the idea of of focusing on who you are on the inside rather than the outside. Mm. Um, also from a teenager's point of view, I feel like girls in general are very insecure about their bodies. Absolutely. Um, especially due to social media and movies and magazines. Um, everyone's bodies on these pieces of media, they're all perfect, but that's not real life. Right. So when you're showing your body, on a frequent basis, you become aware of all of your imperfections and you become you very self-conscious sure. of all of your imperfections and how your body compares to this person's body. It ends up taking a lot of headspace mm. on a 24-7 basis. So I like the idea of not having to worry about that on a practical level. Um, I could cover myself in a still a beautiful, attractive way. But I also didn't have to worry about any insecurities, whether it's comparing myself to my peers in any way. Um, but I also like this spiritual implication of it that your inside matters more than your outside mm. and that your body is not the, the essence of you. Like You are not your body. And I felt like I internalized that a lot in Mahanalta. Um just because we got to know, all the girls got to know one another on such a deep level. We didn't really, we didn't focus on our bodies at all. It was very, mm. it was such a spiritual and intimate connection that we were able to have. Um, so I wanted to bring that into my daily life. When I left there, I wanted to- How long to, were, you th were you there for in Mahamalta? So I, I, I went for two summers. So the first mm -hmm. summer was in the summer of 2018. Mm -hmm. And that was just for one month. Mm -hmm. um, and then you came back to, to the United States. You came back to Florida. And right. you were in university then, or you were in school. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And right. then you decided to go back the next. Okay. Right. So when I came back the first summer, back to the U.S., about to start my first year of college, I took on everything so my mom dropped me off at the airport wearing basically, I think I was wearing a skirt just because I, I wanted to, but it was tighter and I was wearing a tank top. And then she picks me up from the airport a month later and I'm completely covered head to toe with, um, with, with a dress and uh, an undershirt. And she's probably thinking at that point, what did I take my daughter to? <laughs> 
she, I think later on, she said she was worried that I was being brainwashed in a sense because I had gotten there a completely different person and then come back a completely different person. Sure. In one month's time, for sure. Right. It was very quick. Um, And it was also very hard to sustain since I took everything on very quickly. Suddenly I was worried about kosher at home in my mother's non-kosher kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there was a lot of pressure from her end to feel like she was doing enough for me. Right. Um, And then very quickly I was starting the first. Were you encouraged to take on so much like in Mahon Alta or it wasn't really spoken about? No, it, I feel like it, they tried to prepare us for coming back home to a family that isn't necessarily observant we had a couple classes on how to approach um, like our parents or siblings. Um, but I think, I think I just was feeling so excited that I just took everything on. I, I wouldn't recommend that at all. <laughs> and I don't think anyone encouraged me to do that specifically. Um, but I just suddenly, since I felt like I knew the truth, I wanted to do the truth. Do it all. Right. Wanted wow. To, and so you said it wasn't sustainable. What happened after that? Right. So first year of college hit and suddenly there's a ton of responsibilities. I'm living on my own without a kitchen, sharing a room with someone who's not Jewish. Um, this was still in Florida. You were in college. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to college about three hours from my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, so close enough where I could go home, but I wasn't home very often. Um, it was very, very difficult. And I realized that suddenly I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't keeping kosher. I was, I was doing it in the sense where I wasn't mixing meat and milk. Um, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't eating pork or shellfish, but I didn't care about, you know, any kind of kosher signage on products anymore. Um, cause it was just too hard. There wasn't a kosher program at my college and, um, there were so many events going on. They, they put freshmen through a lot to try to integrate them. And so every night there was something going on. And in order to keep up with schoolwork and events and needing to socially integrate, I just dropped okay. things. Right. But when I did that, something I held on to was SNEAS. And I told myself that I'm going to, even if I'm backtracking now, I'm going to slowly take it up again. Mm. And to do that, I first told myself, I'm not going to wear shorts anymore. That's out the window. Mm. So I gave away all of my shorts. And so at this point I was wearing just jeans. If I wasn't wearing jeans and I would wear skirts or dresses, but they weren't necessarily below my knee. And then suddenly I didn't feel comfortable wearing jeans. I just felt like they just showed off my body in a way that for some reason at that point in time, I was, I just didn't feel comfortable anymore. So then I told myself, okay, let's get rid of the jeans. Now you only wear skirts and dresses, um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't care about length. And then the stages just went like that until I didn't feel comfortable wearing skirts that were above my knee. I just felt like, I just didn't feel feel like myself. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like I was 
being true to myself. So then I got rid of all the skirts and dresses that were above my knee. Um, and then I also had to go with um, like slowly over time, the, the length of the sleeves and the necklines I was experimenting with. Um, That's interesting. And during this time you were not eating, you were eating not kosher. Right. Yeah. So it was just Sneas, the loss of modesty that really, really resonated with you. It sounds like. Right. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And at the end of that first year, I knew I needed to go back to Mahanalta to regain some of the things that I had just lost or, or dropped. Um, I was really, I felt strongly that I could, that I could do it. Hmm. I knew that it was in me to do it. It was just, I needed more of a foundation. I took everything on things that were brand new to me. I didn't know how to practically carry them out. Now I needed to learn how to practically carry them out. Now that I knew what they were, I needed more of that foundation. Wow. So, so, you, went, so you went back that summer and what was that like? It was also really beautiful. Um, but I saw things in, in a completely different perspective um, because I was in the school before. So I knew the area a lot better and I felt more comfortable where I was. And because I think because I felt more comfortable in the area and mentally, I felt like I could grow more healthily and more comfortably in a spiritual sense. Hmm. So, for example, the first summer I was in Machanalta, I um, don't tell anyone, but I skipped a lot of the <laughs> of the halacha classes or the Jewish law classes the first summer because I didn't feel like it applied to me. I wasn't keeping any Jewish law and I, I went to a couple of the classes in the beginning and I just, I was so bored because it wasn't relatable to me at that time. But the second yeah. summer, it was very relatable to me because I had tried to implement them. Mm -hmm. It fell through, but I wanted to implement them now. So having that desire um, made me go to the halacha classes and actually learn in depth um, about why I was doing the things and the practical um, steps behind them. So that second summer is when I started keeping Shabbat fully, and I've never stopped keeping Shabbat since. Wow. So since 2019. Oh, wow. So you, after that summer, you went back to, to college again? You went back to Florida to college? Right. And how was that integrating it? So I think I really, I really credit my shluchim, my rabbi and rabbitzin at college for keeping me afloat. I also credit my rabbi and rabbitzin from my hometown for keeping me afloat. Because Who were the rabbi and rabbitzins at the college? Rabbi Shmoli um, Sasankin, yeah. and then he's married to Chayla Sasankin. So nice. They were pretty new to the college. I went to a very small private college. Mm -hmm. um, there were no um, observant Jews at that college. Um, so when I was back for the next year, I would just spend a lot of time with my shluchim at college. Um, a lot of times I was the only one there for Shabbos. Um, it got lonely. It got very lonely, but they really, they really tried. They would give me kosher food. Um, if I was sick, I would have chicken noodle soup. Mm -hmm. I also, I didn't have a kitchen. So 
I lived in this tiny dorm at this point, And the only thing I had was a um, hot plate and a blender. So I just made a lot of scrambled eggs and <laughs> a lot of smoothies. Oh, wow. And I just lived off of that for that whole year. Um, besides for the my Robinson's really special cooking. But for the most part during that time, I felt really sick um, physically because I don't think I was getting enough nutrients. Mm. Um, and sometimes that made me feel sick spiritually too, because there weren't really, there wasn't really anyone my age around me who was going through the same thing. There wasn't That's anyone else lonely. keeping kosher. That's very lonely. Right. So I tried, I really, I thought about transferring many times to a different college, but I went for, um, as an English major in the English department there was phenomenal and my professors were very encouraging. So I didn't want to leave, but I felt like something needed to change. So I set up some meetings with the dean and with administration, which started because I was told that I wasn't allowed to cook in my dorm room because someone found out that I was using my hot plate. Mm -hmm. Um, But they needed to know why I was doing that because there wasn't any kosher options in the area. So um, Leah, the Rebbits and Leah Rosenfeld from my hometown and her husband drove up the three hours to sit with me in some of these meetings to try to explain to administration why exactly it was that I needed to, um, that I needed to cook on the floor (laughs) (laughs) and why I couldn't eat any of the college's food. The college had, a huge like buffet style um, situation. They also had their own restaurant. So I think they were confused why I couldn't find anything that I could eat because there were were a lot of options, just nothing was kosher. Um, They addressed every allergen imaginable and they still Mm. do, but kosher just wasn't part of their plan. So we were able to educate them Mm. on kosher. we also, we had to kind of fight with them because they were still making me play, pay for a meal plan, even though I wasn't using it. Mm-hmm. It was just growing pains because they had never experienced an observant Jew before. Um, and I also brought up Shabbat to them because the, like to get into my dorm, it's all electronic, even to mm-hmm. get to my room. So if I wanted to leave on Shabbat, I couldn't get back in because you can't use electricity on Shabbat. So I was asking them for an actual key so that I could have freedom on Shabbat, whether to, to come and go. Um, that they didn't budge on because they said it was a, a security issue. Uh-huh. But um, everything else they were they were listening to, they let me cook on the floor <laughs> and they lowered my um, my meal plan so that I wasn't paying for the full the full price oh, wow. and I wasn't using it. Wow. Um, the next year I met with, so at the same time, I was really involved in my school's newspaper. My senior year, I became editor-in-chief. So I was able to establish a lot of good relationships on campus. And as a result, I was able to present what being an observant Jew is like. And I was also able to express the difficulties of being an observant Jew on campus. For example, if I met 
an administrator for coffee for an interview or yeah, for coffee. And if it was an 8 a.m. interview, which it sometimes was, the other person would have, would order breakfast. It was like a hot bagel. And they would ask me, oh, you're not getting anything. And I would say, no, because there's no kosher options on this menu. And then, and then they would get it and they would sink in and then they would realize, whoa, it's not everything is accessible here. Um, So I was able to kind of spread that idea. Um, Were there other Jews on campus that were not observant? There were. The problem with this campus was that I believe 7% of the campus population was Jewish. Mm -hmm. The problem was no one really wanted to say they were Jewish. Mm. It was really hard to find Jews on campus. I was working with my shluchim to try to find those Jews. And I was taking um, Jewish-centered classes and... um, religious-centered classes because I had a minor in Jewish studies. And so there would be Jews in my classes. So I would go up to them and ask them, you know, what they do for Shabbat and invite them over to um, the Shulchan's house. And um, we were able to do that and find people through, you know, a grassroots approach. And the rabbi would go on campus and ask people if they were Jewish um, and if they wanted to wrap tefillin. So we were able to find a few people that way. But the college at this point wasn't allowing Chabad to be an on-campus club. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a whole, there were, there were a lot of politics um, behind the reason why. So we weren't able to advertise on campus that there was a Chabad available. Wow. Students. So at this point, we were just trying to find them. <laughs> right. Wow. And you were, so you were, you were there for how long? How long were you in this university? In this for college? four years. Four yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And so where are you now in your journey? What's so the real kind of butcher now? <laughs> <laughs> now, Baruch Hashem. Okay. So I graduated in May. Baruch Hashem, before I graduated, we were able to establish a kosher program on campus. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. There's a kosher program, and new students can go and enjoy. Um, Are you comfortable saying which university it is or which college? Sure. It's um, Rollins College in Orlando. Um, there's an amazing um, kosher supervisor there. She's a woman, and she's incredible. Um, and she really worked hard to make this happen. So that's, again, Rollins Co- College in Orlando, because someone's asking that, actually. Yeah. Okay. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So now they have a whole kosher option. That's so right. beautiful. A beautiful menu, really beautiful menu. And they change it all the time so that people don't get tired of it. Were you were you able to access that at all when you were there or that happened afterwards or towards the very end? Towards the very end, unfortunately. Wow. Um, it was for a few weeks, but it, just, <laughs> it makes me really happy. I saw photos over Sikkis. Um, the kosher restaurant put up a tiny little sukkah in the back so that people could eat in the sukkah. Wow. It's really I wouldn't have imagined that happening when I was. So you really caused, you created a lot of change there. It sounds like based on your experiences and your, I guess you were very vocal about what, what a Jewish person would need there and that they listened. Yeah. Yeah. I I did have to um, like frame it a certain way. I needed to tell them that it was an important business opportunity to mm-hmm. have a kosher program because well, that's true. Sure. They, they noticed that their Jewish population was declining. Um, mm-hmm. So they needed, they needed some sort of 
Jewish infrastructure and they just they didn't have anything. Um, so now I think they're they're trying to build that from the ground up. Amazing. Um, and I do think that's the reason why I was there. Was Amazing. To try to figure that out. But right now, okay, so I graduated in May and um, I spent the summer at my mother's house. And about two months ago, I made the move to New York um, to try to be closer to a Jewish community. And um, I work remotely, so my job wasn't a problem. But I'm also applying to grad schools for writing. Um, mm. I just, I really miss learning. And um, I do think I want to teach writing one day in a Jewish school. So I think getting a master's degree in that is really valuable to me right now, just in my life stage. And really enjoying all of the kosher options here, I feel like. <laughs> sure. People, and, and everywhere you look is an observant Jew. I'm just, I'm so not used to that. Um, it's just, it's such a, it's such a blessing. I think if you grow up in a place like that, it might be easy to take it for granted. Sure. But everyone here keeps Shabbat. Everyone is very supportive of one another to, um, to make sure that you can do the most mitzvot that you can do to be close to Hashem. Hmm. Um, so it's really, I'm really enjoying the community. Of course, I miss my hometown community. Um, Leah Rosenfeld is doing incredible things in Lake Worth, Florida mm -hmm. and building up her community there. Um, so I do miss it. But I think here it's just a very wonderful place to grow. So accessible. Wow. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, how does your mother relate to all this? Does she think that it's okay where you're at right now? Is she happy? Is she proud? Is she is she horrified? She's, she's very proud. Yeah. Very right proud. now she's very proud. Amazing. Um, I think once you show, I think once I once she noticed that it wasn't a phase and that it was something that you were that brainwashed, I, but you actually right, I wasn't brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> but something that really positively impacted my life and positively impacts my life on a daily basis. Um, I think she she noticed that. And so she's really happy and encouraging um, as a result. And my grandmother is like probably the most supportive person in my family when it comes to this. She keeps a kosher drawer in her house. So whenever I visit, she just opens her drawer and she's like, this is this is Hannah's kosher drawer. Like, so you can use whatever you need in here. Um, so nice. Everyone's, yeah. Thank God everyone's supportive. Where, where do you see yourself? Like, what's your dream for yourself for the future? Where do you see yourself going? If you could just picture yourself in five years or 10 years down the road, where would you like to see yourself? I know that's a hard one, right? But is there any any vision that you have? I do. I'm not sure where exactly geographically I see myself, but I do know that based on my experiences and my connection to Hashem, I want to like share that with as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. So that would include my own family that, um, God willing, I'll build soon. Um, I would want to kind of infuse that warmth and excitement for Judaism in my own home, but also with just people that I meet. I'm, I'm in contact with a lot of my friends from college, um, non-observant Jews, even non-Jews. Um, but every day 
And every conversation is an opportunity to kind of share a light and a warmth that I held on to in Judaism. Mm. Um, and it's very, it's a very simple thing to do to, to share warmth and kindness with another person. Um, so I see myself building a family based on those values and, um, and growing career-wise also, and just in classes, potentially as a teacher, sharing that with students. Well, I hope, you, I hope, I hope you'll give us at thejewishwoman.org, I hope you'll grace us with your, with your writing. This is an invitation, Hannah. Thank <laughs> you like so you much. So much. You have so much to give, absolutely. Thank wow. you, I really appreciate it. Is there one mitzvah that you would say is your favorite mitzvah? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I've listened to some of your talks, Chana, and I know one person said to you that their favorite mitzvah was the mitzvah of um, tying your shoes a certain a certain oh. way because they really liked the the detail of the tying of the shoes. Um, I wouldn't say that, but I would say um, I think I think keeping kosher was such a struggle for me over the years that now I really appreciate it and love it mm. when cooking my own food. So everything's done with such intention. Um, and it makes me just really, really feel connected to Hashem um, when I'm taking out a meat pot, when I'm making meat or taking out a dairy pot, when I'm not eating meat, which is most of the time, I usually don't eat meat. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... I'm very conscious of the intentionality of it when I'm cooking. And I think that's my favorite right now. But I, th I think that stems from just, you know, struggling with it over the last few years. And now that it's so easy, I don't want it. I don't want to take it for granted or wow. make it feel I mean, too easy. The one that was most challenging became your most favorite. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, if, if we're running out of time, but if you could go back to, that younger version of yourself, what would you like to tell her at this stage in time? Hmm. I can, I can remember one day, I think my sophomore year or junior year where I was so frustrated and I thought all of the challenges and keeping kosher and just feeling hungry all the time and just irritated. And there were so many Jewish holidays to remember um, I remember I was sitting in my car and I was just crying in our parking garage at school. And I called my Rebbitson and she told me that to remember that I can bring Israel wherever I go. That just because I'm not in Israel doesn't mean that I can't make an impact. I can make a huge impact when I'm not in Israel um, spiritually. So that message to me meant that even when I'm in a low place, I can use that, that kind of spiritual downfall in order to grow the highest that I possibly can. Um, and to acknowledge that it's hard, but also to acknowledge that the reason why it's hard is because I'm trying to do something really great. And so sometimes those forces naturally contradict each other. Um, so I would, throughout that whole process in college and even navigating 
you know, keeping kosher with family and keeping holidays with family and making sure that I'm being fair to them and being even kind and warm with them while I'm still being observant. I think I would just tell myself over and over to just bring Israel wherever you go. Sometimes it's just a really helpful mantra to have. And I think I would have, I would have um, benefited from that kind of mantra very early on. That's beautiful. What, what would you like people to take from your journey? It's an incredible inspirational journey of so much growth and so much, I'm sure there was a lot of hardships along the way, you know, in getting mm -hmm. to where you are right now. What would you like people to take from your story? Hmm. I would love for people to, I, so I think I started in a very privileged place and that place was knowing that Hashem existed and that he had my best interests in mind. A lot of people don't have that foundation when they're soul searching. A lot of people don't, they need a lot of convincing and a lot of proof that God exists. And that's, it's a huge, it's a huge deal. It's a huge, it's a huge thing to comprehend um, as your, as your foundation in your, in your spiritual journey. I think I would want people to really know if you are wondering about your identity, if you are wondering about your relationship with Hashem, if he's really there for you, if he really exists, um, I think you should know that everything in your life is by divine providence. Nothing happens not for a reason. Um, and to keep searching until you feel until you feel God's presence next to you, because he's always there. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just about opening your eyes and really allowing yourself to feel it. So I would love for people to, to allow themselves to feel Hashem in every aspect of their lives. Beautiful. And last question, what do you do to find that connection? How do you personally, when you're feeling lost or you're feeling challenged or you're feeling sad or the many things that we go through in life, how do you... Yeah cultivate that connection personally? For me, it's A, having really amazing mentors who are by your side and who can help guide you. Um, B, it's feeling vulnerable enough to speak to Hashem normally, just on your regular day-to-day -day basis. Like if you're in your car and you're feeling really low and stressed out while you're driving, Sometimes I just speak aloud and just talk to Hashem. It's hard to break through that barrier at first because you question yourself, who, who am I to speak to Hashem so casually? But Hashem can be your best friend. He's your father. It's all of the above. Um, that really helps me keep my connection is just when I'm doing mundane things to just speak to Hashem and then ask him to help give me clarity and guidance and whatever challenge I'm going through. Beautiful. Beautiful. Hannah Butcher, your journey is incredible and inspirational, and there's so much wisdom to your words. You're relatively young. I mean, I don't know if you think you're young, but I certainly think you're so young, and yet you display such wisdom and such perspective. So this was so beautiful for you to share your journey with us. 
And I just want to wish you just continued growth and continued success and continued connection to just deeper and deeper, deepen and deepen. um, And tremendous. uh, I'm sure we're going to see tremendous things from you in the future. Thank you so much, Khana. I'm really, really happy that we were able to make this work and make sure that my journey could be shared. I feel like it's, it's so special to be able to share it with everyone. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you so much, Khana Butcher. Thank you for joining us.